Ladies and gentlemen, to those among you who are easily frightened, we suggest you turn away now. To those of you who think they can take it, we say, welcome. Lavelle White from the 1994 album Miss Lavelle, available on Apple Music. Interesting that I picked that song. Usually I'll say, why are we playing that song? Well, I'm just going to go ahead and say it. We're playing that song because it's not the name of a movie that we're going to talk about today. And we'll talk about that later. Why don't you tell people what we are going to talk about? A while back, we did a whole show on Lionel Atwell, and we got a lot of good response from it. And we've done shows on Lon Chaney Jr. And I I think we did Lugosi and Karloff. It's been a while early on. Kind of thought, what about George Zuko? He's the other mad scientist, you know, kind of gets clumped in with Lionel Atwill. But there's a lot more to Zuko than mad scientist roles. So we're uh, going to be taking a look at three films. And all of them are different for Zuko. He's not a mad scientist in all three. I think it's going to be it's going to be fun. It's not going to be as salacious as Lionel Atwill. He had some some torrid stuff there in, in the towards the end of his life. I think these are going to be uh, three fun movies. Hopefully, everyone's been playing along at home. And uh, you know, definitely uh, one doesn't get talked to. I, actually, I think two of the three are probably don't get enough love at all. And uh, the other one, because it's public domain, kind of just gets clumped in with a bunch of other films. So I think these are three films I haven't heard anyone else talk about. So I think it'll be fun. What are they? What are the three movies? We're going to take a look at Dr. Renault's Secret, which is not a universal film. It's not a Hammer film. It's 20th Century Fox, and they were not really well known for their horror movies. They did, you know, a handful of them. And this was uh, this was one that really, I think, came off quite well. And it's got J. Carroll Nash. Third month in a row for Mr. Nash, playing a different role than he's played in previous months, showing his versatility. We are going to go with the public domain flick Fog Island and then uh, wrap it up with a film we weren't going to do. And you said we'll talk about that shortly. We're taking a look at Lured from 1947. Not Lurid, but Lured, a Lucille Ball movie. I think that's the only time we'll do Lucille Ball here on the show. This movie has some legit horror cred because, of course, in addition to George Zuko, it's got Boris Karloff. So you get a bonus this month. Not only do we get George Zuko, you get Boris Karloff. Not a first time viewing for me. Been a while and I forgot how fun that movie was. And if you haven't seen it, you're going to want to see it by the time you get done here and what we have to say about it. So let's welcome everyone to this month's meeting of the Classic Horrors Club and the Classic Horrors Club podcast. This is episode 57. 
And let's welcome also our people on the YouTube channel. Hello, YouTube channel, Jazz Hands. Different video here behind me to try to even things or give a little something exciting. So if we veer into comic book discussion, I'll be ready to go. I feel like romper room here is like, I see Superman and Wonder Woman and... I should have brought out my magazine boxes and put like famous monsters on the front. But... You should have. That's that's a goal for next month. There we go. Although, will we be in our studio next month? Maybe not. I don't know. We'll have to wait till the end of the episode to find out. I'm Jeff Owens from ClassicHorrors.club. And across the internets from me is... <laughs> I thought you were going to say across the interstates. This is Richard Chamberlain from kccinephile.com and monstermoviekid.wordpress.com. We'll start the meeting like we do every other meeting with old business. We have a roll call of new members on our Facebook group page. We have two new members this month. We have Rusty Morris and Glenn Az. AZ, welcome to the club. And we invite any other listeners who have not yet joined this Facebook group page to do so. We appreciate everyone that participates in that. Absolutely. So I mentioned a little switcheroo in the movies we're talking about. And this this will count as our feedback for this episode. Normally, we have feedback. And Richard, how, how can people send feedback? What, what are the different methods we use? Oh, gosh. So you're going to call me on the phone number and I don't know. No, no, no. Just okay. You can say phone. You can okay, say, well, okay, you can do it by phone, you can do it by email, and you can do it on Facebook. Heck, you could even do it during via text message if you're connected to Jeff or I. Really, in any way possible, you can send an MP4, MP4, or MP3 via email. Send us a video clip, send us an audio clip. You could probably even respond on YouTube with a comment yeah. uh, to our YouTube videos. I think in there somewhere you did mention uh, calling and leaving a voicemail or sending a message. The phone number people can call is 616-649-2582. Easy to remember, though, our number is 616-649-CLUB. That was so operatic. That was very nice. Yes. Lovely, a little different than usual. Uh, I said you could remember that. Unfortunately, you won't be able to forget that. <laughs> wow. I, I compliment in there somewhere. <laughs> yes. Okay. So our feedback did come through the Facebook group page. Or no, it was email, I believe. Vincent Spinelli yes. sent us an email at classichorrors.club at gmail.com. And we had announced our three movies. And Richard, I think we opened it up. We said, hey, if you know a better movie, let us know. We're happy to change it up. And Vincent did. So I'm just going to read here what he said in his email. I just finished the latest podcast on the Captive Wild Woman trilogy and quite enjoyed it. Thank you, Vincent. Concerning your next podcast, George Zuko is a fascinating subject. May I suggest that instead of Voodoo Man, in which George has a rather embarrassing role that wastes his talents, you take a look at Douglas Sirk's Lourdes from 1947. This film is somewhat overlooked by genre fans, yet it has such favorites as Zuko, George Sanders, Sir Cedric Hardwick, and even an extended cameo by Boris Karloff. He then tells a little bit more about the plot. I don't want to give that away quite yet, but he says Zuko's performance is nothing short of a revelation for those only familiar with his genre work. And he proves himself quite adept at comedy as well. Oh, yeah. So we took Vincent's uh, suggestion, and that is why we are doing Lourdes instead of Voodoo Man. But there is no song called Lourdes that I could find. So I played 
the Voodoo Man song. It's been a long time since I've seen Voodoo Man, and I've only seen it once. And the copy I have, it's available on Blu-ray now, but my copy is an old bootleg copy, which was the only way to get it for many, many, many years. And I remember nothing about it. But I knew that Zuko was in it. I was going down the list. I forgot that Zuko was in Lord. For some reason, that didn't leap out at me. I am so glad that Vincent reached out with that suggestion because... Lord is a is a, as we'll talk about it. It's an incredibly fun film that doesn't get talked enough about. And maybe it's because it's got Lucille Ball in it, and you don't think of horror when you think of Lucille Ball. But it's a fun film and really shows off a different side of Zuko. And I think all three of these films give us a different taste. We don't get three mad scientist movies. We're we're getting three different sides of Zuko in these movies and. And this one, Lord is definitely very refreshing and entertaining, and I think everyone will enjoy it. So thank you, Vincent, for reaching out and giving us that suggestion. Hopefully you enjoy what we have to say about it. And just as an example of the banter we get on the Facebook group page, we then posted that we were going to change the schedule because we know everyone watches these movies ahead of time, you know, with us. Hopefully, hopefully. Uh, Nicholas Hatcher, one of our good friends and members there, responded to that announcement and questioned, better than Voodoo Man? I contend that any movie featuring a maniacal John Carradine playing bongos during a voodoo ritual would be in the top 10 of cinematic achievements of all time. Well, well, you know, we'll have to wait for a future date to see if well, you know we we we've talked about doing a John Carradine episode, so maybe John Carradine playing the bongos fits into John Carradine month. Voodoo Man's not out of the running yet, not yeah. this month, but maybe. Hey, John we've got Carradine. years to go. We're only Absolutely. on episode fifty-seven. Our contracts for two thousand. All right. All right. Let's dig in and talk about George Zuko. We're going to take a trip through his life like we've done previously with Barbara Steele and and Richard mentioned, mentioned Lionel Atwell. George Zuko was born in Manchester, England on January 11th, 1886. But Richard, you know what that just instantly makes me think of? What, what in the world was going on in the year 1886? Well, you know what? We've never done 1886. As we've talked about, sometimes we, we, you know, I'm struggling with some of these months because I didn't keep track of what we did, but I know we've never done 1886. (laughs) We're not going to do favorite movies or favorite TV shows or favorite radio shows. Didn't have that in 1886. However, they did have music. So the most popular musician of the day was John Philip Sousa. (laughs) The uh, first trainload of oranges from California left in February of 1886. Now, this was kind of interesting. Dr. And I'm going to guess on the pronunciation here. Dr. John Sith Pemberton invented Coca-Cola and uh, started advertising it a few months later. So Coca-Cola was originated, a staple at many movie-going experiences. This man included loves his Coke. I shouldn't drink it, but I do. The uh, Statue of Liberty was dedicated on October 28th by President Grover Cleveland in the first of two terms. Now, this was interesting. Geronimo surrendered on September 4th. Now, they still refer to it online as the Indian Wars, which I I think that's totally non-PC. 30 years of wars with Native Americans uh, essentially came to an end with 
the surrender of Geronimo, who he had been on reservations several times and he kept breaking out. Upon his surrender, he remained a prisoner of war, which is horrible, uh, until his death in 1909 when he was 79. They would bring him out for public events every once in a while. He would he would make a little money selling sometimes articles of clothing, selling his hat, selling a button off his jacket. He was always accompanied wherever he would go. Uh, there was like a big buffalo hunt in Texas that he attended and shot a buffalo because that's what Native Americans do, right? Even then at that point, I mean, Geronimo never hunted buffalo, but they brought him out for that event because he was Native American. That's what they do. Or that was the thought. Kind of sad bit of news there, but his surrender did kind of bring an end to that. Native Americans being put into, I wanted to say concentration camps, but put into um, reservations. You know, unfortunately, he was a prisoner of war until his death. So who was the Queen of England? Not Elizabeth. Any other movie we do, she's going to be the queen, at least for the foreseeable future. But in uh, 1886, it was Queen Victoria. She had been the queen for, uh, well, gosh, almost 50 years at that point. 1837 to 1901 was her reign. I know by 1896, she was the longest reigning monarch in England history at the time. Now, that was, she was surpassed by Queen Elizabeth on September 9th, 2015. Prime Ministers of England, everybody knows Robert Gascoigne Cecil and William Ewart Gladstone. They both served as Prime Minister during the course of the year. Now, here's an interesting little tidbit. Robert Louis Stevenson's Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde was published at first in 1886, as was Alice's Adventures in Wonderland. (laughs) And uh, as far as famous actors or actresses born only two that really leapt out at the page al jolson who of course was the star of the first sound motion picture the jazz singer and an actor by the name of edward everett horton now that's not a household name if you see a picture of him you will probably recognize him as a character actor from films in the 30s and 40s i'm actually getting a dvd set from them coming out by early June, Ben Modell, who does original scores for silent motion pictures, also has his own label called Undercrank Productions, did a fundraising campaign, does one about every other year, and did one for Edward Everett Horton last year. He was in eight silent short comedies in the late 20s, and they've been kind of overlooked because everyone always talks about Charlie Chaplin, Buster Keaton, Harold Lloyd. And supposedly he's quite funny. So they've been restoring and doing original scores and putting out that set. That name caught my eye. Richard, do you Uh, happen to know when Edward Everett Horton died? I don't know. Hmm. He probably not. Well, could he have lived into the 70s? Um, Well, I mean. Going a long way for a joke here. Sorry. No. I bet he didn't. And that's a shame because had he lived there. Horton could hear the who. Get it? <laughs> oh, my gosh. Okay, I was like, where are you going with this one? Yes. Sorry. Well, if he lived into the 60s, Horton might have heard a who. Yeah. <laughs> uh, now, I do want to do this real quick. When I started doing the research, I was doing research for 1896. 
and I had it all done. And then I realized that we're talking about 1886. There was actually some cool movie news from 1896. When George Zuko was 10 years old, a few cool things are happening. I, I had to share this stuff. In 1896, the Vitascope, I think that's how you pronounce it, film projector was designed by Charles Francis Jenkins and Thomas Armat, and they began working with Thomas Edison to manufacture it. This was used to project the first films in New York City in April of 1896. The Lumiere brothers were first projecting their films in Britain that year as well. That was also the year in which Georges Malaise began working with special effects on his films in France. In 1896 alone, Georges Malaise released 77 films, including Playing Cards, The Haunted Castle, A Nightmare, and A Terrible Night. If you don't know who Georges Malaise is, do yourself a favor and seek out his films. A lot of them are on the internet. He is very much the grandfather of, of fantasy films. He was originating some really state-of-the-art special effects for 1896. Of course, the biggest film he did was A Trip to the Moon. You've seen the image of the rocket ship and the, and the eye of the man on the moon. But he did so many other fantasy films. He eventually, by 1912, which is when he stopped making films, he had made 1,556 films. Not all of them still exist, but many of them do. And he was also featured, the character was featured in the movie called Hugo a few years back, which is a great film. Alice Guy Blachet was the first female film director and is a name that has only in recent years started being talked about again. In 1896, she released the first narrative film and the first directed by a woman. It was called The Cabbage Fairy. She remade this movie in 1900 and 1902. The 1896 version doesn't exist. There's a great documentary out on her that came out a couple of years ago, and it's based on a book that came out, I think, a few years before that. I think it's called It's Natural, I think, or It's Unnatural. One of the, I can't remember. I saw the documentary. It's great. Turner Classic Movies, I think it was last year, played a selection of her films. I've had an article for the blog percolating about her for the longest time, and this has just kind of inspired me to dive in, see some films I've got on my DVR of hers. And really interesting because, you know, women directors became basically non-existent in Hollywood for, for so many years. But she was one of the first film directors, made a name for herself. There's a whole history about her. And sadly, this documentary kind of shows how she kind of went into obscurity at some point. And her family now, of course, a couple generations back or down the road, have boxes of pictures just sitting in a garage that this director of this documentary discovered. They didn't even know for sure, like, where she was in all these pictures. And it's it really fascinating yet sad. Some tidbits from 1896 that I had to share that were just too good to throw away once I realized I was doing the wrong year. We got to be careful. This will become an educational podcast. We, we don't want to do that. No, we don't want that. No. Richard, I meant to mention that I'm using as our guideline through our journey through George Zuko's life, a book called Hollywood's Maddest Doctors. 
This is actually a biography of Lionel Atwell, Colin Clive, and George Zuko. I don't know why I did not see this when we were doing the Lionel Atwell episode. I used another different biography for that. But this is by Gregory William Mank. We've uh, seen him at Monster Bash. Fantastic. lot of, when he wrote, this is from 1998. And at that time, George Zuko's wife was still alive. So he's got a lot of personal anecdotes from her in here. It was a great, quick read, very helpful. So you can see I have it earmarked at some places. I'll be reading some passages from that as we go through. So you did research in a book, not on the internet. Kind of harkens back to our episode a while back where we talked about reference material. Sometimes it's good to dig out the book. And I did research from Poverty Row Horrors by Tom Weaver for Fog Island. You know why? Because I couldn't find anything on the internet about Fog Island, yet there's a whole section in this book that gave me more information that I could get on the internet. That's why books can be handy. More education. I'm starting to feel like LeVar Burton and reading Rainbow. (laughs) All right. So back to George Zuko, born in Manchester, England. His father was a merchant of Greek descent, and he died when George was very young. His mother, speaking of Queen Victoria, was a lady-in-waiting to Queen Victoria. I had to look up lady-in-waiting, and I did that on the internet. Basically, a personal assistant to the Queen, probably one of many, I imagine, It'd be interesting if you would have gotten a book about ladies in waiting. That that I don't know how entertaining that would have been, but he was educated at Borden Grammar School, probably about 1896 when he was 10 years old. Went to London Polytechnic and Kent. He had honors in mathematics. He played soccer and cricket. As a teenager, he came to Canada. He worked on a farm and he developed a lifelong love of animals. His first documented stage experience was in a play called What Happened to Jones? And that took place while he was in Canada in Saskatchewan. In 1913, he made his way to New York City. He was in a vaudeville sketch called The Suffragette. Then World War I happened. This is World War I. He went back home to England and he joined the West Yorkshire Regiment. And he suffered uh, some very real-life horror in uh, during World War I. And I'm going to refer to the book now. This is his wife, Stella, says that George started as a private and became a lieutenant. He went to the front line in the trenches in France and was very badly wounded. He had his right arm shot away and he almost lost it. They managed to save the arm, but it was never very useful. The middle of his arm really had been shot away and they had to try to draw the tendons together. It was mostly skin and bone. Two fingers of the right hand never came up afterwards. They were always turned down. The other two fingers and thumb were all right, so he could really manipulate. I think he camouflaged it remarkably well. It was the amazing the way he managed the arm. I think most people never even knew about it. I never saw anything in any of his movies. That would never visible that. at all. After the war, he returned to London, and this is when his stage career really began going, and he became a noted stage actor. Very interestingly, in 1929, he was in a production of Journey's End that had a bunch of people. James Whale directed it. R.C. Sheriff wrote it. It starred Colin Clive, Maurice Evans. Supposedly, Zuko sort of uh, outshined them all and became the surprise hit character of that. It's interesting to me then that when this group 
up and moved to America and they made the film version of Journeys In, which Whale directed, R.C. Sheriff wrote, Colin Clive starred in. Uh, Zuko was not part of that, and I'm not sure why. I was kind of interested to learn, but did not learn that. Maybe his career in, in London was just going so well. He was known as a, quote, spellbinder for his magnificent presence, but he always was the perfect gentleman. And it was during this time that he met his wife, Stella. Uh, Meanwhile, he started acting in movies in England in 1931, his first movie, The Dreyfus Case, and uh, really kept company with some big names here in these early movies. In 1932, one called Midship Made with Nigel Bruce and Frederick Kerr. 1933, The Good Companions with Edmund Gwynn and John Gielgud. Then he came to Broadway, back to New York City. In 1935, he opened in the play Victoria Regina. Do you know who else was in that? I don't know. Mr. Vincent Price. Oh, wow. This was the play that made Vincent Price such a star. I remember the title sounded familiar, but I couldn't remember. Like it seemed familiar, but yeah, I think I think I'd heard that before. Awesome. Yes, with Miss Helen Hayes, and it was a big thing for her as well. Vincent Price did make a comment about George Zuko that's quoted in the book. I apologize. This is uh, the producer, Louis D. Hayward, told this story about Vincent Price and George Zuko. In one of the Dr. Fives films, there was a scene in which Vincent, as Dr. Fives, was to take a drink through a hole in his neck. Well, Vincent did it so delicately, so beautifully. I asked him about it, and he said he'd remembered what George Zuko once told him. At one point in Victoria, Regina, Vincent had badly overacted. My dear boy, George had said to him, remember that acting is a six-letter word. A-C-T-I-N-G, asked Vincent. No, said George, S-U-B-T-L-E, subtle. Vincent Price thought George Zuko was terrific. About this time, George and his wife, Stella, had their one and only child, Frances. She had a very interesting fate that we'll return to a little bit later. They lived in Central Park, were living the high life in New York City. But then the summer of 1936 was very hot, and Victoria, Regina, I guess they didn't have Air conditioning back then, it shut down for the summer, and Hollywood was beckoning. I guess rather than not work for three months, George Zuko and his wife and child headed out to Hollywood, and he became a contract player for MGM. That was common for, like, stage plays. Oh, yeah. You know, particular venues would close because they didn't have air conditioning. It would get stifling, right, because you didn't have windows, you know, Mm -hmm. so there was just nowhere for ventilation. So, yeah, they would often close during, and if they were located in an area that got warm, they would often close during the summer season. Hollywood became an option for actors to continue to act in what was had up to that point been an off season for them. Yeah. And he, he never went back. He sort of had that option. He had a good thing going with Victoria Regina and uh, he went to Hollywood and, and never came back. His first movie for MGM was in 1936 after the thin man. I bet you have seen that. Love the Thin Man movies. Do you recall him in it? I don't, actually. Occasionally, MGM loaned him out to other studios. He made movies for 20th Century Fox and Paramount. Nine movies in 1938, and he realized he could make more freelancing, working for other studios as was needed. 
because MGM farming him out and then using him as a contract player was making more money off of him than he could make for himself. So he became a freelancer, left MGM, and he was then one of Hollywood's busiest character players. In 1939, that was the year that sort of established him as a villain. I'm sure you know him from The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes. He played Moriarty, supposedly a very interesting portrayal of Moriarty. Moriarty is a character that is played differently. He's a character that is not in every single Sherlock Holmes story. I think in the in the books proper, he may only have an appearance in one, but yet is often used quite a bit in some film series. I recall that his portrayal of, of Moriarty was, was definitely uh, good, but a different take on it than what you might normally expect. Same year, he played in Cat and the Canary. This was the uh, second comedic version with Bob Hope, and this was the first of three movies that he would make with Bob Hope. Then in 1940, he went to Universal and made The Mummy's Hand. That was a huge hit for Universal. As we know, it had several sequels. He would return in years later to play in The Mummy's Tomb and The Mummy's Ghost. I have a quote here regarding this stage in his career. And this is again Stella talking, and she said, they really overdid it here. I really don't think Hollywood did the best that they might have done with George. And then they started making him do horror movies. That, I think, was a big mistake, a big mistake. I hated those mummy movies. They weren't good enough for him. Always, no matter what role he was doing, George was a real professional. I don't think he could go on and give a bad performance. He loved what he did, which is one of the reasons why he was so very good. Didn't love the mummy so much, but made, or at least his wife didn't, but he made three of them and they were very beneficial to his career. But the horror movies did start about this time, 1941, Monster and the Girl, 1942, I believe this was his first movie for Poverty Row, Mad Monster. Is that correct? Yep. And then the same year, our first movie, Dr. Renault's Secret. Yeah, I just I have to mention one of the films he did in the late 30s, because it is a name that we will hear numerous times. And we've been hearing for the last couple of months, as with many other actors from this time period, he was in a Charlie Chan film, uh, Charlie Chan at Honolulu, 37, I think. And I can't recall his role in that. Um, I saw the Charlie Chan films many years ago. Once Carl and I get done with Sherlock Holmes, we're going to be diving into some of the other detective movies, Charlie Chan is on the list, but uh, right now I, I can't quite remember that one. I think he was also in Hunchback of Notre Dame. I had that yes. list. Yes. Um, yeah. As he entered the forties. Yeah. He started doing a lot more horror films, some good, some not as good. Or 1942's Dr. Renault's Secret, I think is a great way to start off taking a look at his movies. I think, uh, I think it's a movie that, doesn't get talked about enough because again, it's 20th century Fox and everyone always talks universal horror or poverty row during this time period. 20th century Fox is not who you think of when you think of horror movies yet. I think they, they pulled off something, something entertaining with Dr. Renault's secret.
tried to kill Dr. Forbes at the inn last night. No. Don't keep lying to me. For years, I worked to change your appearance, make you talk. Get you in danger all I've done for the sake of your stupid animal jealousy. It was the same criminal who tried to kill you at the inn. But why should anyone want to kill Larry? Where's Noel? You surely don't suspect him. When Dr. Larry Forbes goes to visit his fiancée at her uncle's chateau, he meets Noel, his strange, hypersensitive handyman from Java. Unusual events occur, and Forbes becomes suspicious. He soon learns that Dr. Renault has a secret. Released October 19, 1942, like you said, 20th Century Fox. It was written by William Bruckner and Robert F. Metzler. And I found this fascinating, and I watched the bonus features, so we can talk about that in a little bit, that it wasn't credited, but it actually was based on a novel by Gaston LaRue, Baloo, Baleu. I think Baloo. Baloo. Yes, Baloo. And it was directed by someone, surprisingly, we haven't talked about in the last two episodes. We've done Harry Lackman. Somebody new. Yes, how about that? What do you make of Dr. Renault's secret? This was uh, not a first time viewing for me. This was a second time. Uh, was it your first or, or first? First, okay. So I got the Fox Horror Classics Volume Two set when it came out years ago, and I got it for Sean Do the Magician because it has Bell Lugosi in it and Dragon Wick that has Vincent Price. So those are the two movies that I got the set for, and this movie was just part of the set. It was an extra. Now, I like J. Carroll Nash, as I've said previously, and so I was discovering a lot of his films, and I knew about Life with Luigi, his radio show at that point. I remember when I watched this movie, I loved J. Carroll Nash, and even more so now because we've seen him in other films in the last couple of months where he played the police detective, and he played a mad scientist, and he played the charming slash smarmy pharmaceutical CEO, right? And listening to him on Life with Luigi, where he plays a comedic role here, he is playing a very sympathetic creature, essentially, that was turned human. And right out of the gate, you immediately have sympathy for Noel because he's, you get the gist that he's getting picked on because he's he's different. Yet he has the moment in the bar where, when he hears somebody say something disparaging about Madeline, that got him angry, right? And he grabs the guy and clearly he he has affection for this Madeline. I love the way the story kind of played out because it's a mad scientist has created a creature, but we don't deal with that right away. Where we get to know Noel, the man, and then we find out that Well, we knew something was up with them, but then we find out exactly how he was created when George Zuko's Dr. Robert Reynold decides to give us the backstory a little bit, right? And yeah, it's it's crazy. We, you know, ape with plastic surgery to look human, but you immediately then, it's a bit of a turn, right? Because George Zuko was somewhat likable up to this point. 
But then you see the way he acts towards Noel and he grabs the whip and he puts him in a cage and it's like immediately like, nope, don't like George Zuko. He's a bad guy. And the sympathy that you have for Noel is even greater. And it continues really through the rest of the film. You can't help but feel for him. And I think it it's different than like what we got with the Jungle Woman trilogy, right? Because same premise, you have the ape turned into human and you have sympathy, but I think it was done so much better here uh, in this particular movie than what we got in that whole trilogy. And I think a lot of it is simply because of Jay Carroll Nash and just his sympathetic betrayal. You know, you get the violent moments, like when the dog attacks him, you know, he kind of goes crazy, but then you immediately see that it was instinct and that he's, he was sorry and he didn't want to hurt the dog. It was just his instinct was to protect himself. His, his bestial response was something that he wanted to control, but couldn't. I, I think that J. Carol Nash makes the movie in that sense. If, if you didn't feel sympathy towards Noel, then the movie would be kind of lost on you. But because of that, and then, you know, George Zuko turning in a good performance as someone who you didn't really entirely suspect at first, although the occasional glance and look and stuff that he would give, you knew something was up. But then when he makes that turn, it's like, nah, he's definitely definitely the villain of the piece. And then even more sympathetic for Noel. And then towards the final act, when Noel is in the village, and the villagers are making fun of him as he's trying to dance and stuff like that. You just, you feel sorry for him because here he is. He's just, he's trying just to be himself. He was looking forward to going into the village and you feel sorry for him, you know, and that's, that's really the the sadness that you feel right up until the very end of the film and, and, and what happens to him at the end leaves you hating Dr. Renault even more and feeling even more sympathy for Noel. You mentioned the way they showed his transformation. I really liked that. It was, his, you know, a big scrapbook with pictures from the surgery. And uh, that was a cool way to do that. And I think so. It's, it was different. Make it yeah. have already happened and not be part of the movie, like an origin story. You know, I really liked that. And Nash was really good. There's a part at the end where he jumps out of the bedroom window when arguably the real bad guy of the movie takes his girl and carries her away. He jumps out the window. He, there's a tree out there. He swings on the branch like a ape, you know, and lands on the ground. He, he does really a good job. It, it's a good thing with the arms too. It's like he kind yeah. of, you know, his arms are kind of, he gets that hunched look at times. Very convincing. Very convincing. You mentioned the, the screenplay, like William Bruckner and, and Robert F. Metzler, not a, a lot of, of horror cred at all for either of these the screenwriters. William Bruckner did a lot of TV work, Maverick and Bonanza, and Robert Metzler only had seven writing credit. They were really pulling from the source material, I think. I'd love to know how much they pulled from the novel Balu by Gaston LaRue. The documentary talked a little bit about it because it also went into the fact that this is actually the third film version based on the movie Balu. And I had seen a clip because uh, one clip does exist from the 1913 film, uh, which was the first film. Balu was made in France in 1913. And then there's the U S version called the wizard. 
1927. I think it's the 1913 version that the clip exists. Maybe it's the 27 version. Okay, I know that I've seen the clip before. The wizard version is a little different because it's a human head being grafted onto the ape's body. That one is entirely lost. So yeah, I think it's the 1913 version that has a clip uh, that exists from it. And clearly the wizard sounds like they they went a slightly different way. Uh, but the original 1913, I think, was was pretty comparable. Probably didn't go into as much explanation as the plastic surgery and all of that, but you get the basic gist of it. But I, I'm curious as to how much this was William Bruckner and, and Robert Metzler and how much was actually Gaston LaRue. You mentioned that documentary. I watched it as well. And that something that was interesting about that and this comes as a surprise to nobody is that these ape human movies, I mean, are just, they've been popular since the beginning of movies. And it talked about how those early movies that you mentioned, The Wizard, you know, that was early. And I guess on one hand, they were probably pre-code, so they probably pushed boundaries a little bit. But they talked about how jump ahead 30, 40 years in the 1940s, studios were more willing to deal with the themes than they were back in those early movies. So I found that all interesting. And they even talked about how this movie in a way is a sort of predates Planet of the Apes. I'll just throw in here that it's 80 day, 80 degrees in Minneapolis today. So I have my sliding door open and I'm willing to risk any sounds, any ambient noise that picks up. Okay. Okay. And when something like that screeches by, I'll either try to mute or we'll take a pause. Okay. Okay. I was like, you all right. I mean, <laughs> I did want to talk about the universe or yeah, the universal versus Fox. And by yeah. the way, none of these movies are universal today. So we really are departing from the last two episodes. The style is just obviously different and I kind of like it and you don't think about it. I guess I don't when I'm watching so many universal movies, but I don't know really how to describe it. They're maybe sort of more clean, maybe less cluttered, maybe a little bit less realistic scenery. It's beautiful. It's crystal clear. And it's in some of the movies, very artistic, but you get a movie from Fox and it's like very real. I don't know if it's locations versus sets in some cases. Uh, I don't know if it's different directors and different ways of filming, but the, the difference is distinct. And I don't always remember that uh, when I watch a bunch of Universal, I think, oh, that's just how movies looked at that time, but I don't think that's necessarily the case. Not all, no, I mean, Universal has a look to it and, and, and Universal films are great, mm-hmm. but yeah, I mean, different studios have different looks. I mean, MGM, for example, you know, can have a much grander palette, but MGM is not known for horror movies, right? You don't think of, of some of these other studios. And so when we get something from one of these that aren't cranking out the movies like Universal was, yeah, it, st- it stands out. It looks sharp, kind of refreshing to see something look a little bit different, to see some different faces. Because again, you have a lot of the same players in a lot of the Universal films. And so it's, it's uh, now, yeah, Nash and, and, and Zuko obviously were Universal too. But to see some of these supporting characters, we have a Shepard Strudwick as Dr. Larry Forbes. We have Lynn Roberts as, as uh, Madeline Renault. Two people that don't have a lot of horror cred to their name. Strudrick, really, the only other things that he did genre-related were some TV episodes of Twilight Zone, Thriller, um, Inner Sanctum. So we get a shout-out for Inner Sanctum again. 
Lynn Roberts was only in a couple of other movies that really weren't horror. The titles make them sound horror, but they were more suspense, thriller, almost comedies. Uh, the Ghost Walks Alone and The Phantom Speaks. Nice to see some different faces, though. That's another thing that helps make the movie stand out because we're, you know, after, especially after the last two months of seeing a lot of the same actors in different roles and seeing the same directors and the same writers. We're getting something pretty fresh this month with all three of these films, offering us something a little different. Now, Mike Mazurki, familiar face, plays playing the ex-con. Surely you've seen Mike Mazurki in, in films before, if you don't know him by name. He was a pro wrestler, great character actor, did a, usually played the gangster or the bully. He was in classic episode of Gilligan's Island, where he played the character of Igor. I think he gets the voice of like Ginger or something. Remember Vito Scotty played the mad scientist? Yeah. He was in Batman, Mannix, Gunsmoke, lots of character roles. He was in uh, Dick Tracy, 1990, played the old man at the hotel. Hmm. It was his last role before he died that year uh, at the age of 82 of heart failure. But well-known character actor when you need a heavy and sometimes a heavy with a slightly comedic role about him. He was a villain of the piece, but he was this that subplot that you kind of like forgot about. And then it kind of came back into play. And then, yeah, that, that's where that was going towards. And ultimately, he's the guy who kidnaps Madeline at the end. Right. And then has the the battle between he and, and Noel. Yeah. I love that whole sequence. And it was pretty a big part of the movie where they go to the Bastille Day Festival and he sort of goes on his revenge killing spree, knocking off the guys that have bullied yeah. him. And uh, I love how Renault is there just kind of, he's sort of befuddled half the time. He, well, like, he's, he's shocked when he sees him because he thought he was, you know, in a cage yeah. and he turns around and looks at him. He's staring at him in a mirror, but then Noel immediately gets pulled into the dance. It's but like, he doesn't try to get him to take him home or anything. No, it's like he wanted to, but he didn't want to draw attention to it. So, so then he goes and sits down in the cafe. And when one of the people Noel kills, he tosses him out the window or over the ledge. Or yes. something. That was so funny. They seen it from inside the cafe and Renault is sitting there eating and plop. This body falls right. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Kind of, kind of funny. The ape that we see at one point played by someone famous, Ray Corrigan. Also uh, often known as crash Corrigan. He would often play an ape or a gorilla as well as real characters. He played one of the uh, gorilla characters, uh, gorilla or ape character in Tarzan and his mate, the second Johnny Weissmuller movie. He also played a a beast character in the uh, first Flash Gordon chapter serial in 36. He was the headlining actor in Undersea Kingdom, which is a well-known chapter serial. Did lots of Westerns. He was also in The Monster Maker. A couple of his last movies, he was in Zombies of Moritau. And he was It in It, the Terror from Beyond Space. He was the Mm. the monster. Uh, 1958, he retired. He went on to operate Corriganville. That was a filming location for TV and movie Westerns. Hmm. among some other things that he did. Yeah, he didn't have a, a a big role, obviously, in this. It was like kind of in and out real quick. But yeah, well-known Crash Corrigan is, is the is the best. You know, might not known by Ray, but Crash Corrigan was his name. And I think they build him as Ray Crash Corrigan in Undersea Kingdom, which I saw many years ago. Fun chapter serial. 
worth checking out if you like chapter serials. I thought that was a fun little tidbit. Yeah. What uh, do you know about the director? What else did he make? Harry Lockman did a movie in 35 called Dante's Inferno, which I have never seen. I had it at one point. It's another one of those films that for some reason isn't my collection anymore. He did Laurel and Hardy movie called Our Relations. It's considered one of his better films that he directed. He did five Charlie Chan films. Charlie Chan's a name we'll mention quite a bit. <laughs> J. Carroll Nash himself was in Charlie Chan at the Circus. Dr. Renault's Secret was actually his last film before he returned to painting. He, he actually was an established painter. He lived in France. He was trained or practiced in, in France, ended up working on sets in Hollywood, and then kind of got into directing and then decided he wanted to get back into to painting. And so following uh, this film quit being a director, left Hollywood and returned to being a, being a painter for the rest of his life. Hmm. Kind of a, an interesting turn of events there. He kind of started, came, went into this, was successful, but it wasn't his calling. It wasn't his passion. His passion was painting and that's what he returned to. Hmm. That's all I had. The only other little tidbit I had was that this movie was actually paired with the undying monster and that that one of the reasons 20th Century Fox made this was to kind of do some counter-programming to films like The Wolfman and Cat People. It was kind of the end thing, people turning to monsters or creatures. So they were capitalizing on that and I think pulled it off very, very well. Like I said, this was a, not a first time viewing for me, but it was the first time in a while. And I thoroughly enjoyed this one. Again, I highly recommend it to anyone who wants to see something from this time period. I want to say grow tired of Universal, but if you want to expand your horizon, there's more than Universal out at this time period. And some of it's good. And this is definitely something worth checking out. Zuko doesn't appear for till about 15 minutes into the movie. He doesn't have a, a huge role. I mean, he's not a star. Zuko is not always the star in his films. But I think that once we get introduced to him, I mean, we see the he can be charming. And then once we find out that there's the real him behind the charm, you can't go back at that point and uh, ends up being convincing. I think, I don't want to say stereotypical, but he's a mad scientist. He, he definitely is, is, this is his mad scientist role. And uh, of the three films, it's the only time we'll see him as a mad scientist this week, which I think is fun because we'll get a chance to see some different aspects of Zuko in the next two films. To offer up if people want to check this out, you're going to have to put a little money up for it, folks. Facts, the Fox Horror Classics Collection Volume 2, which also features Shandu the Magician and Dragonwick, selling right now for about $50. So it's out there. Uh, is it, you know, pricey for three films? $50 isn't bad. You do get extras with all three films. You get a nice little documentary with all three. Uh, Dragonwick, I think you get at least one, maybe two radio shows. Kind of fun. I think they may even throw in a Shandu radio show on the movie. I, I can't quite remember. I mean, come on. You're getting Lugosi. You're getting Vincent Price. $50 is a good good way. You can go standalone. Uh, this movie was released on DVD as a 20th Century Fox Cinema Archives, kind of like a Warner Archives release. But it's $25 just for the movie, and I don't know that you get the extras with it. Seek out the Fox Horror Classics collection. It's worth the 50 bucks, in my opinion. And I was able to find the 
somebody had broken up the set and made a slipcover for each of the movies. And I was able to get just Dr. Renault's secret out of that set. I was pretty happy with that on good old eBay. So it's now World War II. George Zuko became a U.S. citizen. And about this time, his mother and stepsister moved out to California. They literally had a bomb fall into their backyard, so thought it would be best for them to go somewhere safer. 1942, The Mummy's Tomb came out. Uh, 1943, Dead Men Walk for PRC, which is Producers Releasing Corporation of Poverty Row Company. This is a period where George Zuko was in a lot of horror movies, but he never really got typecast like some of these other actors. Horror was his specialty, you could say, during this time, but it it never restricted him from doing other things. In fact, you know, later in his career, he did several movies that weren't in the least bit horror. So that's a little unique for, you know, someone to go see Karloff, Chaney, you know, Uh, didn't happen to George Zuko. As you may know, did a lot of radio shows. He appeared several times on Suspense. And he, at this time, was known for his professionalism on the set. They called him One Take Zuko. 1944, Return of the Ape Man. And this has a very interesting story. He is credited for being in this movie. Let me read you out of the book what they say about this. The Ape Man wasn't a role that required a horror star, just a burly type or a stuntman. It would have been completely beneath Zuko to subject himself to the makeup sessions, run around half naked and give audiences a glimpse of his underpants. On October 6, 1943, the fifth day of production, it was announced in the Hollywood Reporter that illness had caused Zuko to withdraw from the cast of Return of the Ape Man. Horror fans have always enjoyed telling themselves that Zuko stalked off the picture when he found out what the role entailed, which very well might have been what happened. I believe I did not find it in researching, but I think I have read before that he does appear in a long shot or something. Yeah, he's. I think he's on a table and you see him for a few seconds. He's also in some of the um, publicity stills. And I think the lobby cards, actually, I think I think one of the lobby cards may have him, but I know he's in some publicity stills. And his contract stated that he still had to be credited, whether he was in the film or not. He is technically in it, but it is weird because he gets kind of high billing when you're watching it. Like, where's George Zuko at? You're, you really have to have a sharp eye to check him. It's been a long time since I've seen Return of the Ape Man. I don't know if he was ever in a movie where he had a lot of makeup or anything. He usually just looked like himself, right? Yeah, that probably is why he walked off. 1944 came Voodoo Man that we mentioned earlier. House of Frankenstein also. He had a small part, Dr. Bruno Lampini, at the beginning of that movie. And then in 1945, he teamed up with his neighbor. Did you know that Lionel Atwill actually lived in his neighborhood? I did not know. I wonder if George Zuko attended any of those parties. <laughs> uh, I don't know. They got together and made Fog Island in 1945. Sounds like a perfect time for us to uh, go to the trailer. Yeah, and let me explain this trailer a little bit. I could not find a real trailer for Fog Island. I don't know why this one was produced. The only synopsis or details it says on YouTube is 
Unearthed Mystery Horror, now playing on the unexplained channel Sky 201. So it's an ad for some type of channel or show that it, it was going to show Fog Island. And I, this is very funny, very short, but funny. And so don't think it's the real thing. It's almost oh. like if Sven Gulli did a trailer for... Or a yeah, yeah, or like a videotape trailer, you know, yeah. those early videotape trailers. So yeah, that's probably where Fog Island was made at some point. Because it's a public domain film, so anybody could do anything with it. It could be played in any numerous of places. Hello! The weather today on Fog Island will be foggy. With a continuous cloud of murder working its way up from the south, while this lady will have a warm front pushing out towards the west. A confluence of deception dissipating throughout the day should cause a few problems. So in summary, there'll be murder, deception, a warm front, oh, and lots of fog. When he's released from prison, Leo Granger moves into a creepy mansion with his stepdaughter. To celebrate his return, he invites the business partners that framed him to an evening of deception and revenge on Fog Island. Fog Island was released on February 15th, 1945. PRC, Producers Releasing Corporation movie. Written by Pierre Gendron from the play Angel Island by Bernadine Angus and directed by Terry O. Morse. How'd you like Fog Island? This is the second time viewing for me. Uh, I had the Alpha Video DVD from, oh gosh, probably 15 plus years ago when they started cranking all those movies out. I was picking them up at Borders Bookstore because they had the huge DVD section and they had a, a whole section for alpha video. And so every time I'd went, I'd get a stack, you know, cause they were cranking out all the Bela Lugosi movies and they were public domain. So the quality of those alpha videos are not always the best. Sometimes they're the best that's available. And I don't know that there's a better print of fog Island out there, but I know that was a problem that you and I had I don't have the DVD anymore, um, so I had to get it off YouTube, and I found the best copy I could on YouTube. You were probably watching the same thing on, you said Amazon, I think is how you yep. watched it? Amazon Prime. Not yeah, it got better, but it sure started out choppy, and I thought, oh my gosh, I am not going to be able to get through this. Well, yeah, the fog scenes really get very muddy. Carla pointed that out right away. She says, oh, this is really bad. Uh, and I said, yeah, I said, it, it'll get better. I said, you know, I think, but dark scenes when you're dealing with a movie that doesn't have a good print, the dark scenes are always harder to make out. And that's a challenge with this movie right out of the gate. It being it's public domain, it's readily available. It's out there for free. That's a plus, but you're not getting a crisp, clear print. Be aware of that. I couldn't remember anything about the first time I watched it. That says something. It's my least favorite of the three movies. There was potential for this movie to be more than what it ultimately was. And I think because it was a Poverty Row film dealing with a, a micro budget, essentially, it ultimately couldn't, make, couldn't cross to that next level because it didn't have the financial resources to be better than what it was. And so the budget becomes a hindrance because you've got George Zuko and Lionel Atwill together doing a really good job in their respective roles. 
you had some interesting supporting cast, some stronger than others. You had a good premise, I think, kind of the old dark house kind of set up. You had the fact that there was the fog island. If we would have had just a little bit more, you know, maybe we could have seen some some scenes might have really enhanced it, like actually seeing the guests coming to the island on a boat rather than just hearing about it and, and basically see them walking in through the fog as we're looking out the front door through what is a very stagey set. Certain things like that, I think, would have enhanced the movie and come, unfortunately makes the the movie feel feel kind of cheap, which is what you get sometimes with public domain films. Doesn't mean it's a bad movie. I just kept seeing potential that wasn't wasn't actually realized. Yeah, that's all yeah, it wasn't realized. Inexplicably, I loved this movie. And I liked it better than Dr. Renault's Secret. Wow, okay. Uh, it definitely you can see that it was a play. And I I want to see that play though. Uh, I thought it was very funny, very clever. I loved some of the lines. For some reason, and also for some reason, and this is very odd, well, more so in Lourdes than uh, Dr. Renault's Secret, but this is the first time I saw George Zuko and like he had a sparkle in his eye and he had his voice. And I was like, oh, I see why you were such a popular character actor. I want I want to say that's that's very evident in another movie he did called The Black Raven, which is similar to this. I had seen that the black Raven prior to this, because mm. I'm going to be covering that on the blog and in the black Raven, he's playing someone who was wronged and kind of out to get revenge a little bit. The, the subplots are, are very different, but he's playing kind of a similar character mm. and he's doing it better in the black Raven. And so that's where I immediately was comparing. I was like, eh, this is kind of like that but it, it was better in the black Raven with just as much of a limited budget yet that prints also a little clearer than what I was watching. And there's certain things that were playing out a little bit better in that movie. So that's something that I think had I not seen the black Raven, I might be more on, on your page. Hmm. You know, whereas I was look at that. Where did you watch that? Or did you have it? It's public domain. Um, I think I didn't have that one. So it's, it's out on YouTube it's a better print than Fog Island. So again, it's public domain, so it's not going to be crystal clear, but it's better than what you'll get with uh, Fog Island. It's one of the the movies I'll be covering. We'll talk about at the end of the show. I'm, I'm going to be doing some extra Zuko movies as well as Zuko old-time radios. Old-time OTR Wednesday. I've been taking a bit of a break, but it's going to be coming back in, uh, in May with four old-time radio shows with Zuko. Black Raven is one of the movies I'll be covering. Okay, cool. Yeah, I don't know why I liked it so much because it's definitely flawed that uh, we've got another actor that is just as dynamic as the one in uh, what the second in Jungle Woman was that the one that had the dud of a young actor that the same guy, this guy that plays Jeff. What do you know about him? Not a lot to say. I mean, yeah, that you've got so you've got all the the cast of characters. I think like all of the friends friends you know that he invites to the island <clears throat> i think they all come across rather well you know they're they're playing quirky characters to one degree or another and then the movie falters when you've got the characters of gail his stepdaughter played by sharon douglas 
and Jeff Kingsley played by John Whitney because they have zero charisma, in my opinion. They fall flat. He has 34 films to his credit other than Fog Island and a supporting role in Sands of Iwo Jima. None of the titles were really catching my eye at all. He kind of comes and goes. Not a lot out there for him. I don't know what he did before. I don't know what he did after, but he kind of did his thing, didn't make a mark, and probably made a decision to kind of cut his losses, leave Hollywood, and, and seek out his fortune elsewhere. Acting was not his thing. He wasn't like a horrible actor. He just didn't have the charisma. And there was no spark at all between the characters, no chemistry between them at all. Sharon Douglas did even less work. She was only in 10, uh, only had 10 credits. She was a radio actress, although I didn't see what she did. So she might've just been supporting characters on radio, but neither one of them, really did anything on film. And I, this movie really shows off why. I think maybe why I liked it so much is the, the supporting cast, the other characters, you know, Emily, yes. the fake medium, and Sylvia, the old secretary, and Lionel Atwell. Uh, I got to ask you, though, I didn't think he looked very good. And I know this is towards the end of his career, yes. but did, did you notice that? Yeah, absolutely. One thing I thought of with this is that, so you have, you know, George Zuko playing the character of Leo Granger, Lionel Atwell playing Alec Richfield. And Atwell, I think it's top billing uh, in the movie. But filming started October 25th, 1944. He died in April, 1945. So this is really six months before he died of cancer. He would have had cancer at the time this was filming. He looked very tired his performance was very subdued. I think he just didn't have energy. I think Atwell and Zuko, I mean, had Atwell been at kind of peak performance, I think the movie would have been interesting to see them swap the roles because I think Atwell would have been a better Leo Granger because he would have been the over the top. He would have been doing things with his eyes as Atwell always, always did. I, Last night, late night, after watching Joe Bob, the film detective had the vampire bat. And I watched the last half hour of that. And it's just, he's, his eyes are just everywhere in that movie. I think he would have been interesting to see him as the character of Leo seeking revenge. And George Zuko playing that more subdued role of Alec Richfield. I, I, that would have been very interesting for me to see. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, Lionel Atwell was not well in this film, uh, unfortunately. And it definitely shows. Yeah, and some of the lines among them, I mean, they all get there and uh, George Zuko goes up, you know, to bed and leaves them there. And they, they've they each gotten gotten a little gift at dinner that's a clue, yeah. you know, to the mystery. And they're trying to see what each other got and watch where everyone's doing. And just some lines like Emily is looking around for this hidden compartment in the mantle and she's going to go up to bed. So Lionel Atwell is going to pick out a book for her to read. And he picks out crime and punishment. Uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, but that was great. When they first arrive, Lionel Atwell tells them that this house used to be a place where pirates lived or yeah. something like that. And he says, you shouldn't have any trouble finding your way around. <laughs> and they're just lots of witty lines like that. They're, and they're very stagey. You know, you could see them from a play, but I thought they were fantastic. Well, and they were all seasoned actors and actresses. I mean, the character of John Cavanaugh, 
was played by Jerome Cowan. He would play the district attorney in Miracle on 34th Street. I was, rec- you know, re- immediately recognizable for me because I was like, oh, yeah, you know, he pops up every holiday season. Uh, he was also in the Maltese Falcon, had 222 film credits. So more of a character actor, never quite the lead. But obviously, when you again, you got John Whitney, 34 credits, Jerome Cowan, 222. There's the night and day. The character of Sylvia was played by uh, Vita and Borg, 141 credits to her name. She is in another horror film. She's in Revenge of the Zombies from around the same time period. Then, of course, you've got Dr. Lake, played by Ian Keith. He plays uh, Ramses in The Ten Commandments. He was in Charlie Chan movie called The Chinese Cat. He was in Valley of the Zombies. He played the character uh, for comic book fans. He was Vitamin Flintheart in a couple of Dick Tracy movies from this time period. Uh, Dick Tracy versus Q-Ball and Dick Tracy's Dilemma. Jacqueline DeWitt played the, she was wearing kind of a turban wrap or whatever, playing the mystic, I guess. Emmeline Bronson, obviously charismatic on the screen. Some great lines from her about, well, you know, that her psychic abilities, she can't predict how her life will end or what her future holds, which would have been helpful if she could, because it doesn't end well for her. She was in a, a Charlie Chan film called Black Magic. She is also in Twilight Zone, One Step Beyond. She was also in uh, Twice Told Tales with Vincent Price. Hmm. I do want to read a passage from her. She was interviewed. There's a whole section, a really good section on Fog Island in Poverty Row Horrors, written by Tom Weaver. This is a McFarlane classic. Well worth getting this book. This is a lot of great information on Monogram PRC and Republic Horror Films of the 40s. She was interviewed about the time she was doing Twice Told Tales. As it says here, schmoozing about Fog Island with writer Don Lyford, DeWitt tended mostly to remember the problems that were associated with this film. I was mainly concerned over how they were going to make the fog. I wanted to know the answer before I signed. They burned some kind of oil to make the fog, and it was awful. At the time, we provided our own wardrobes and received no money for cleaning. When they burned the oil, a haze filled the studio. It got even on the camera lenses we could hardly breathe. Originally, they told me I didn't look sufficiently mysterious for the role. I said, well, I can't grow fangs. So they decided on me wearing a turban. I remember that Lionel Atwill had a very avid interest in the Wall Street Journal. He would peruse it during each break. In the film's climax, his character and some others were drowned. I told them that I wasn't well, so I didn't have to get in the water. I didn't want any of my clothes to shrink, so I argued that I might get pneumonia. I told them they could provide a nurse, and they changed the script for my character. I know there would be foibles. The others were in that swimming pool for two days and two nights. I wasn't particularly proud of being in Fog Island, I didn't say anything to my friends about it, but the stations ran it forever on television. Everyone would say, what were you doing telling fortunes on Fog Island? Such are the vagaries of life. She sounds like a character. Yeah, she really, she really does. You got to imagine that two days in the water for Lionel Atwill, if he's already in a weakened state, could not have been good. Could not have been good for him, especially he clearly would have had cancer at this point, And that would have been 
something that would have just really impacted his immune system even more at that, at that period of time. You know, again, you're dealing with Poverty Row films with not a big budget. There's not a costume person on set. You're bringing your own clothes, getting by with what they can. She was smart. She knew there'd be problems. So she's like, I'm going to catch pneumonia, rewrite the script so I don't have to be there. And it saved her two days and two nights of being in the water. You know, I think maybe this is a case where the bad print actually helped because it kind of masked some of the cheapness of a Poverty Row film. The only time that really stood out to me was you mentioned the water scene, which I just I just think that was fantastic. I think maybe it's Jeff goes down and finds the door and water's coming out and he yes. opens the door. Oh, I really wanted to see what was in that room. And he just kind of stood there and looked and it's, we didn't get to see, we didn't get to see bodies. No. I didn't realize at that point that the water had drained. So there were probably just their bodies scattered around. That would have been really cool to see. Yeah. For 1945. I don't know. They could have got by with that. Maybe. I mean, some you'd see bodies on movies there at that time. Yeah. Period. Oh, room full of bodies might've been too much. Yeah, I suppose. They might, might have aired on the side of caution. You know, the play, Angel Island, actually had like twice the amount of characters, I think. Basically, from what I, I was reading in, in this book, they were talking about it. And it follows fairly similar. One of the reviews on the play uh, from 1937 in the New York Journal American stated that it was a large body of dialogue entirely surrounded by dullness. Aww. Not a lot of love for the play, actually. There was some hype when the movie came out that there was a bidding war. They had won for like some $10,000 or something for the rights to the play. And yeah, the likelihood is there was no truth to any of that because the play was not a huge hit. They probably could have got it for pennies on the dollar to get the rights for it. Now, Pierre Gendron did the screenplay. A couple of other popular... Poverty Row flicks around this time, The Monster Maker and Bluebeard, which is a movie I've never seen. It's John Carradine. And actually, that was on last night, right after The Vampire Bat. I was so tempted, but it was already pretty late. And I'm like, man, I'd be another hour and a half before I go to bed. So I didn't watch it. But it pops up uh, on the film detective with regularity. So I need to check that out. And I've heard that it's actually pretty good for a John Carradine film. It's his first movie in a lead role. Um, and is actually uh, really good. Now, Terry Morris, the jury's still kind of out on him. There, there, some people really give him some, some cred, and others are like, well, let's take a look at what he did. He did a couple of Charlie Chan movies. As I said, Chan was going to come up repeatedly. Shadows Over Chinatown and Dangerous Money. He did a Boris Karloff film in the late 30s called British Intelligence. Hmm. Uh, it's a spy thriller. Karloff has a supporting role. It's not horrible, but not super memorable. And a 1951 film called Unknown Worlds, which I think I've seen, but I can't remember anything about it. It doesn't get a lot of good, good press. He did the American version of Gojira. He did Godzilla, King of the Monsters, hmm. for better or worse, depending on how you look at it. Terry Morris certainly had some genre cred, but doesn't necessarily uh, get a lot of good genre cred unless you really like... Godzilla, King of the Monsters. But I think now that Gojira is readily available after so many years of not, clearly Gojira is the better film of the two. There's a certain amount of charm for Godzilla, King of the Monsters, because that was the way we saw it for so many years. And that's the one with Raymond Burr. But 
Gojira is always going to be the King of the Monsters version, for me at least, anyways. There was some stock footage in this one, the, the brief scene we see of the island, which is kind of hard to make out, actually came from Universal's Horror Island, mm. uh, which I think was 41 or 42, a Universal film that doesn't get enough love. I love that movie. Uh, it's a fun horror comedy and was hard to find for a lot of years. It never got put out on VHS. It is out on blue right now. I think it was in one of the, the recent Blu-ray sets and it was on one of the last DVD sets. So it's out there. There was a time period that you had to, couldn't get it on VHS. I remember my first copy was a bootleg copy that I got off eBay before I got it on the DVD set, which I think it's the universal classic horror archives collection that just has kind of a mishmash of a film. Anyway, that's footage of the Island is actually from horror Island. I do want to throw in one more comment from the book. Tom Weaver kind of wraps up his thoughts on the movie by saying more style and a more generous budget could have gone a long way in putting Fog Island over the top as a Poverty Row mini classic. As it is, we can still enjoy it for its moments of intrigue and full throttle performances of horror standbys Zuko and Atwill. That sums it up for me. Yeah, I don't necessarily disagree. I just still loved it. I do also want to point out that in our first movie, George Zuko didn't appear for a while. In this movie, spoiler alert, he disappears early. Yeah, so, he's there. Still, we haven't year. seen him uh, in a full time leading role. You know, as we said, he plays different roles in all three of these films. Here, he's not the mad scientist. He's the wronged individual seeking revenge. A role that you know, I think Karloff played. Well, Lugosi kind of, sort of played a little bit in some of his films, but not a mad scientist this go around. And so a little sympathy towards him. But then you kind of think about, so the trap that he sets, it was kind of clumsy, right? Because anyone, I mean, because not all those people were necessarily guilty that end up getting killed. I mean, you've got the main person, right? Which I won't give away. But I mean, his daughter or stepdaughter could easily have been in that room with them when the trap got set. And once it got set, Really, unless someone was on the outside, there was no way to get him out. He didn't necessarily think that out. Tunnel vision, he wants somebody to pay, and well, if somebody else pays along the way, then so be it. He didn't want his daughter there, his stepdaughter. He wanted her to leave. So it's not like he was wanting to do any harm to her. But the fact is, she stayed. He didn't change his plans. He kept forging ahead. By doing so... Gale was actually in jeopardy at that point, and he didn't stop his plans. He kept forging ahead. As it lucked out, Gale and, and Jeff, spoiler alert, have the romantic happy ending, so to speak, I guess. Make her leave if he has to kidnap her. You don't yeah. have to kidnap me, Jeff. Yeah. And, you know, she's up packing, and he's, like, looking at all the, the dead bodies everywhere. And then, like, you know, he just kind of comes back and, like, are you ready to go? Let's go. Let's get off this island right now. And it's, you know it's, what would have been a great ending if George Zuko had not been killed. Yes, you think he does, but then at the end, he like watches him go and shuts the door or something. I don't know. Yeah, that would have been funny. I, that would have been not funny, but that would have been good. Because again, he wasn't necessarily a 
bad man. He was just, he was wrong, you know, and he wasn't, I think as she's reading the letter from her mother, right? The mother says, not a bad man. He just made a mistake. And so that's where you kind of have a little sympathy towards him. But ultimately, and I guess that's interesting, right? If that would have been Lionel Atwill, would you have had the sympathy for him? I don't think so. I think you would have had more sympathy for George Zuko than than Lionel Atwill would have played it more over the top. And therefore, you wouldn't have had the sympathy for him. I did enjoy Fog Island. So I hope it doesn't sound like I didn't enjoy it. I just, of the three films, it's the, the, the least of my favorites because I really enjoyed the other two films a mm-hmm. lot. But I think this is a movie that I wish there'd be a better printout. Yeah. I would love to see a better print of this film because I think that it could enhance, could enhance my uh, viewing experience greatly. Anything else? No, that's, that's what I've got on Fog Island. It is a public domain. You can get the alpha video DVD still for about $7. They're always running specials over at oldies.com, or you can get it for free. Just beware of the print you're getting is not going to be great. A year later, George Zuko made The Flying Serpent. This was his farewell to PRC and Poverty Row. In 1947, he was still prolific, still being in a lot of movies and not just horror movies, as I mentioned earlier. And he made movies for several studios, including United Artists, where he made, in 1947, our next movie, Lured. I'm going away with him. Me and my big blue eyes are going bye-bye for good. And that was the last you saw of Lucy Bond. All I know is she met him through the personal column. The unknown person we seek only goes after young, beautiful girls. Then I'm to be the bait. You're alone, aren't you? It's occurred to you that I might be the one you were waiting for. As a matter of fact, it has. Three girls were here before me who left for parts unknown. Lucy. Looks like I'm next, doesn't it? Are you afraid? Never leave this room alive. A homicidal maniac is on the loose in the vast honeycomb of London. When her friend disappears after answering a personal ad, American Sandra Carpenter passes an informal female detective test at Scotland Yard and agrees to help them lure the killer into the open. Lured was released September 5th, 1947 by United Artists, although the production company was Hunt Stromberg Productions. It was written by Leo Rostin, and it was a story by several people because actually this is a remake of a 1939 French thriller called Pieges which is in the United States personal column directed by Douglas Sirk, who I don't know if you know him, but he's very famous for a particular style and and series of movies that he made big melodramatic romances and tragic stories in the suburbs. Not a genre director, but 48 films to his credit. And he's, he's definitely well-known. That's why you will see it often called Douglas Sirk's lured. 
you know when you get your name ahead of the of the the movie title you've elevated yourself to the next level and this movie when it was originally released was released as personal column mm. well it was it was released as lord and then about midway through the release they changed it to personal column because the production code administration thought that the word lured sounded too lurid. The director, uh, Douglas Sirk, felt that the title change confused potential audience goers and uh, led to the film's ultimate box office failure. Mm. Uh, And I have to admit, personal column, to me, sounds like a drama or something where lured sounds much more mysterious. And uh, I think that that's a much better title. Yeah, everything about this compared to the other two is just a lush production. I love the opening credits, you know, a spotlight shining down the street. And as it pivots to a stone brick wall or something, you see one of the credits. It's a little longer than the others, not much. It's not over two hours, but it just zips by. I don't want to say I was reluctant to watch it again. Sometimes I don't watch movies over and over a lot because there's just so many new things I want to watch. And I was like, uh, I I was a little disappointed that, like you, I forgot how wonderful it is. And I am so glad that I watched it because I, it just flew by and I loved every minute of it. Well, I got it originally because it's Boris Karloff. So when I was going through and trying to get all the Boris Karloff films, it was readily available at the time from Kino Video and I snatched it up. And I remember at the time being a little disappointed because Boris Karloff only has really one section of the film but I remember really enjoying all the rest of it. And then I kind of forgot about it. You know, maybe I saw this twice because I remember covering Boris Karloff films over at Monster Movie Kid. But then that's been quite a few years ago now. And so I just, I didn't really remember anything about this movie other than I remember being really pleasantly surprised by Lucille Ball's performance. Now I knew that Lucille Ball, when it comes to comedy, You know, she had done several other things by this period of time. You know, everyone knows her from I Love Lucy and all the Lucy show versions. But there's a couple of other things, you know, like she worked alongside the Three Stooges and Three Little Pigskins from 1934, one of their early shorts, Larry Moe and Curly. She worked alongside the Marx Brothers in Room Service in 1938. She was uh, working alongside... Fibber McGee and Molly and Edgar Bergen and Charlie McCarthy in a movie called Look Who's Laughing in 41. She had a supporting role in Bud Abbott and Lou Costello in Hollywood in 45. So she's worked alongside some of the big guns of, of Hollywood's, you know, comedic talent in the 30s and 40s. My Star Trek reference, no Doctor Who this month, but Star Trek, of course, she was one of the founders of Desilu Studios. Desi Lou, of course, is the studio behind essentially like the first season and a half of Star Trek, as well as uh, Mission Impossible. She is instrumental for Star Trek fans because when the pilot, first pilot, uh, which is called The Cage, didn't sell, she saw something in it and really pushed for a second pilot, unheard of at the time in television. You got your one chance if it didn't sell. Thank you and have a good day. Now, of course, there's a lot of other shows since then that have had more than one shot. The pilot didn't work, but somebody said, ah, come back and let's try this again. All in the Family and Three's Company are well known to have pilots out there that I think All in the Family had, I think, three or four pilots before it was finally picked up. 
they ordered a second pilot for Star Trek. And so she had a big hand in that. She saw something in Star Trek and really pushed for, let's not give up on this. Let's let's go ahead and, and move it forward. Star Trek fans know full well that Lucille Ball is important in the early history of Star Trek. You think but of her as a, as a comedian, right? And right. He, there's hints of, of comedic performance, but yet she plays a really good dramatic lead as well. Yes, hints of comedy, but I, I, you know, and I know that she did lots of other films around this time period, but I don't think she ever pulled off a character like this again that I'm aware of. And man, I wish she would have done more. I wish I would have loved to have seen more from Sandra Carpenter. I love the character. I wish there would have been a sequel to it because I also love George Sanders. He was great as Robert Fleming. He's a great actor. And so it would uh, have been fun to see them come back and do some other type of sequel and get wrapped up in other, some other type of crazy adventure where she's working for Scotland Yard again. I think that would have been a lot of fun. A lot of fun. The only, pro- it wasn't really a problem. I, I didn't have any trouble accepting it, but all the other characters go on and on about what a beautiful woman she is and all that. And I just had a hard time reconciling because I don't think of Lucille Ball as a beautiful woman. And I I could even have a hard time of looking at her in this thing. Oh, is she beautiful? I don't know. Yeah. I mean, because immediately I think of the zany Lucy, you know, character, you know, she was attractive, but not like, at least for me, I agree. I not ooh stunning. She's she's a gorgeous actress. Not un, not unattractive, but not someone who I would think was just absolutely stunning. And miss, somewhere right now, there's a Lucille Ball fan that is, is throwing darts <laughs> at the Classic Horus Club board and like calling us cretins and you know, cretins. What are you doing? Yes, I, I agree with you though. I agree. And so George Zuko, his role in this is just. Amazing. It's different than anything we've seen or talked about today. And he is so funny and the little bit with the crossword puzzles. And yet he's like just a fully fleshed character because he gets this sort of rapport relationship with Lucy. And yeah, man, I want to see more of him also in the sequel. Well, yeah. So his role of Officer Barrett, I mean, he's kind of a hero of the piece in a way, really. I mean, he plays a, a big part in getting her away from Boris Karloff's character of Charles Van Druten, which we'll talk about his performance in a second, because it was just classic Karloff. Then, of course, in the, in the big climax of the film, he comes crashing through a window. He's got blood on his face from crashing through the window, coming to Sandra's aid. He clearly had not a love affection Mike almost like a brotherly affection for her and, and wanted to protect her and wanted to make sure she was safe. That was fun. That was fun to see him in this role. Again, as we said, very different than what we'd seen him in the other two films and comedic, as you said, yeah, there's little crossword puzzles, you know, when they go to the musical performance, not his thing at all. And, and he's just not engaged and he'd rather play his crossword puzzle first see him you don't like well because it's george zuko and he's like lurking in windows and stuff is he the bad guy is he is who is he you know no he's actually a good guy two things so first of all the those crossword scenes are great for him but it's also great for lucy's character because that shows how smart she is she's feeding him the answer in a reply that is just so 
matter of fact, and you know she knows, and you had to think ahead to be able to say that. And yes. I just think that's terrific. The other thing, speaking of, you don't know if he's the bad guy or not. What do you make of the bad guy? I, I remember both times watching this for a good long time. You don't know who it is. And I'm not saying you think it's George Zuko or that you think it's George Sanders. You just don't know who it is. Well, and you have a couple of bad guys in this one because you well, got- that's true. But then when the bad guy is revealed, it's like very obvious. So it kind of switches from ambiguity to, oh, but then it shifts into, you know, are they going to find out who it is and all that? So what, what did you think of all that? You had, what was it, Dr. Moriani played by Joseph Kalea. So he's like the first bad guy. And I never thought that, well, he's not the bad guy, but clearly he's a bad character that she's stumbled upon. And then, well, yeah, he really is this creepy character because he's looking for women to take down to South America. And basically they don't say it, but well, I mean, they do kind of describe that they're going to be put into a life of like prostitution, essentially. He was in The Monster and the Girl, but I can't remember what character he played in it. And I, I just recently watched that and I'm like trying to remember who he played in that. And then he's also in Touch of Evil, which is a movie I haven't seen for a very long time. Once you see him, though, and then it's like, I, I kept trying to remember, it's like, well, I know that it's not, I was like fairly certain it wasn't George Sanders, right? His character, Robert Fleming, uh, now that's too obvious. Then it starts to play out. Then it's like, oh, okay, yeah, it's the character. Well, spoiler alert, I guess, if you haven't seen it, the character of Julian Wilde, played by Sir Cedric Hardwick. Oh, was uh, that Sir Cedric Hardwick? It sure looked like Jack Benny to me. Okay. <laughs> did he remind you of Jack Benny? <laughs> he, did. he did a little bit, yes. <laughs> now, I'm so glad you didn't say that while I was saying it, because then the whole time I'd be like, well. <laughs> he was, of course, was so good in that. And yeah, legitimate horror cred for, for Cedric Hardwick. I mean, he's in Ten Commandments, but he was in Twilight Zone, Story of Mankind, The Lodger, Ghost of Frankenstein, Invisible Agent, Visible Man Returns, The Ghoul with Boris Karloff from the early 30s. Yeah, well-known. I thought it was interesting, right? Once they kind of do the reveal, there's still a lot of movie left to go because it's kind of like, okay, he's been revealed, but now he's playing this whole other scenario out, and now it becomes this kind of interesting game. And I love the scene with him and the uh, inspector, Harley Temple, played by Charles Coburn who is like reading the quotes and like, oh, surely you have that book on your shelf. And, you know, that was a, a, a masterful scene of cat and mouse between these two. And they're not even the main, main characters, really. I mean, they're, they're kind of the supporting characters, but yet pull off one of the most amazing scenes in the movie. And Charles Coburn is somebody that, you know, is, is a kind of a character actor. If you see a lot of movies from this time period, you'll recognize him as far as like, other you know genre films the closest he gets well story of mankind is not a horror film but he's also in that and then of course alfred hitchcock's the parodying case which is one of the hitchcock films i haven't seen so i don't know what he plays in that in that film i i love that scene between temple and wild and, and julian wild was a he was a good villain he was smart he clearly does what he needs to do to 
once he begins to realize that the landscape has changed and setting Robert Fleming up, George Sanders, I, I, I loved him in that role, of course. Who did he play on Batman? Uh, Mr. Freeze? One of the, yes, one of the Mr. Freezes. He had three. He was in Mission Impossible, Voyage to Bottom of the Sea. And a movie we've covered here, Village of the Damned, he was in that. From the Earth to the Moon, he was also in The Lodger and Hangover Square. Some of these titles kind of keep coming back to us. I loved him as that because he's charming, yet there's kind of a little hint of mischief to him. So I never think that he's really the bad guy, but there's always that little like, eh, he's not quite kind of being a player at the beginning of the film and then ends up kind of playing a victim by the end of the film and then a hurt victim, right? Because he thinks that Sandra has intentionally done this, which she, she did kind of, but she misread what was going on. And then he doesn't want to talk to her. You know, he's like, he's just full blown playing the victim role, which I thought was kind of interesting because here he was Mr. Dashing, Mr. Player. And then all of a sudden it's like, he gets hurt. And it's like, I'm just going to sit in my jail cell and just rot away. I thought that was kind of an interesting turn. How long do you think the police knew that it wasn't him? I loved how almost matter of factly, you know, the inspector says, we know, we don't think he's guilty at all. They said, because he's a winner, he's a successful man. They say uh, he doesn't have to kill to win, but the murderer does. Doesn't the inspector say, because I think they ask, right? Well, when did you realize? And I think it was in that cat and mouse situation with Julian that he began to realize that because he wasn't quite convinced that Robert Fleming had what it took and then realized that Julian did in that cat and mouse situation. And then of course he gets the phone call, right? And then Julian's reaction, I think is how he really is like, yep, you're it. And we're going to set you up because I can't get you right now, but I'm going to get you. I think that's where the moment turned for the inspector. Oh, I thought he knew before that and that the phone call was a fake that George Sanders didn't really confess that that was part of the game. Oh, maybe you're right. I'm trying to remember that. Maybe he had a suspicion. Maybe that's what it was. And then it just kind of, that conversation kind of solidified it. Maybe his reaction to the fake phone call was what kind of sealed the deal for him. Great scene though. I loved, I love that scene. I got to mention real quick, not a huge character, but funny character name, the character of detective Gordon played by, Alan Napier, uh-huh. Alfred from Batman. <laughs> I was surprised looking at, at, at his film credits. I was like, he's actually been in more horror movies than I realized he was in. House of the Seven Gables, Isle of the Dead, Hangover Square, The Strange Door, Journey to the Center of the Earth. He was in uh, Hitchcock's Marnie. And he was also in two Tarzan movies because everyone's in Tarzan or Charlie Chan movies around this time. <laughs> I thought that was kind of interesting. The screenplay by Leo Rostin, you know, everything kind of ties in in a weird way. He did the screenplay for a movie called Double Dynamite, which was a Groucho Marx movie that also featured Frank Sinatra, one of Groucho's solo films when he, when the Marx Brothers kind of went their different, different ways. But that movie is interesting because it kind of has to do with a plot about money being stolen from a bank. It's, it's not a straightforward comedy. It's, it's a little bit of intrigue and stuff to it as i was watching this i was thinking where he would end up with double dynamite i was like yeah i could kind of see there's he he gets that style of of misdirection and and kind of like 
Plus, I mean, Double Dynamite's a comedy, clearly, but it's got a subplot going on that kind of fuels the movie. I really enjoyed this one. This is a movie that needs to get a Blu-ray release, in my opinion. Uh, I, the print is good. I'd love to see uh, a cleaned-up print of it, though. This one had some artifacts and stuff, some time and effort spent on this one. I guess it was put out on Blu-ray, though, at one point in the Cohen film collection, but I don't know if that was in the States or not. I couldn't find that that was ever a U.S. release. If it was... I don't know if they did any work to improve the print, and I know that it appears to be out of print now. The Kino Video DVD is also out of print. You can get it for about $30 used. It's also available for rent on Amazon Prime. I had seen it, I think, the first time on Turner Classic Movies. And yeah. I'll just mention that, you know, I watched Fog Island on Amazon Prime, too. It was like $1.99 to rent. Uh-huh. You know how much I rented Lured for? I don't know. $5.99. That seems kind of high to rent that. I don't think I realized I was paying that till the next day I saw. Wow. Yeah. Worth it. Well worth it. Yes. Well worth it. And oh my gosh, we didn't talk about Boris Karloff. Um, (laughs) Why should we talk about him? Great sequence with Boris Karloff playing a, 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 uh, what was it? Designer, I guess. He was a designer, I think. Is that his profession? I mean, because he's getting Lucille Ball to wear the dress. Right, right. They're going to do like a show. And then there's this lady helping him behind that clearly knows that not all's well with with, with, with uh, Mr. Van Druten. And then, of course, you know, the curtain opens up in this little apartment, basically. And, well, we, we've got nobody in the audience but a dog and... What, I think there's a dummy, too. Isn't there like a mannequin or something? Yeah, there's something. Clearly horror material going on there. But that, that, that could go in totally different dark direction. But you need to get out of there now because he's not very stable. And you can tell that anything's going to make him snap. And it does make him snap at one point. And then that's where George Zuko's character, Barrett, really comes into play for the first time and saves her indirectly. I mean, because it leads to a confrontation between Barrett and Van Druten. It saves her from what could have been a very unfortunate set of circumstances because of the door is locked. And of course, you know, <laughs> Lucille Ball very smartly is like, she's in this big dress, goes right and opens the door, lets the lady back in. It's like, get me out of this thing <laughs> so I can get the heck out of here. I love that whole sequence. You know, Karloff gets, if you look at the DVD, it's like, you think this is a Karloff Lucille Ball movie. No, it's it's one 10 minute sequence in the film, but it's a highlight of the film, certainly. Karloff doing probably a day's work, maybe two, depending on how everything play, played out. Not a lot is said. I, I did research and looking at a couple of my Boris Karloff books, and it just kind of casually mentions he did this and then moved on to his next thing. He did this right after The Secret Life of Walter Mitty, where he kind of did a kind of again almost a guest appearance in that movie so i think he was just kind of cranking out a couple of films really quick i'd say a couple days at most is what he he spent doing this 10 minute sequence but a lot of fun just don't go into it expecting that it's a boris karloff movie because you'll be disappointed like i was a little bit initially when i first saw it but the rest of the movie made up for it and, and it's absolutely something that i recommend of the three i would say this is my favorite of the three 
with Dr. Renault's secret being second and then Fog Island being third for me. And I'm flipped. I like this best, Fog Island, and then Dr. Renault's secret. There's a lot more Zuko out there. And so I'm going to be doing some supplemental material for the blog in May, taking a look at some of his other films, probably some of his more traditional horror films, some fun stuff along the way. Let's go into the last few years of his life. This is where it gets a little tragic for poor George Zuko, who just seems like such a nice man, doesn't he? Yeah. In 1951, he was 65 years old, still making movies, and was working on a movie, The Desert Fox, and this is what uh, Stella Zuko remembers happening. They were about halfway through the making of The Desert Fox. George left one morning as usual, and later that morning, 20th Century Fox called me and said George had been taken ill. Would I come down? He got on the stage, couldn't remember his lines, and didn't know where he was. They thought it was just temporary. The director, Henry Hathaway, said, we'll shoot around him until he feels better. Well, he didn't feel any better, and we learned later that he suffered a stroke. I took him home. He never made another picture. So very sad. And you mentioned earlier that his life was not as crazy, or I don't remember the word you used, as Lionel Atwill's, and we certainly learned about that in our episode. But there was a horrible, horrible rumor that it almost was. A book called Hollywood Babylon 2 it detailed outlandish legends that George Zuko was a raving madman, believed he was one of the mad scientists he had played, and went out onto the streets in his voodoo man costume. This also claimed that he died in an insane asylum. Well, none of this appears to have any basis in reality. In fact, Stella, his wife, as I told you, lived till 1998. One, one of the rumors was that his wife and daughter were so distraught that he died that they both committed suicide. Well, not true. Stella, as we know, was alive till 98, lived to be 98 years old. And his daughter, poor thing, died exactly 20 months after her father from throat cancer. I had read that, you know, obviously when you suffer a stroke, which I think is what he did suffer during the, the making of the Desert Fox, right? So he, when you suffer a stroke, sometimes dementia can follow. And I do, unfortunately, I'm going through that right now with a family member who had a stroke a few years back and is dealing with some, some early stages of dementia that's really ramped up recently. And so that's, I, I was very, when I read this, I thought, oh, wow, yeah, I can see that. I'm wondering, because I remember those Hollywood Babylon books, I'm wondering if there wasn't a story of maybe in the 50s after he suffered his, his stroke and was suffering from dementia and before he went into a facility, which he was in a facility, not an insane asylum. He was an assistant living facility. Someone just kind of took some of the facts and maybe turned it a lot more salacious and made it into something that it really wasn't. He was suffering from dementia. So maybe at one point he did think that he was playing in a movie entirely possible. I did read you wonder about whether or not there's any truth to this, that supposedly he was offered the mad scientist role in Voodoo Woman in 57, but couldn't because of his health. I don't know if there's any truth to that. The My story point. in this book is a variation of that. Okay. And this, I think, is so sweet. His agent, his former agent and producer, Alex Gordon, 
that was all a, a setup for him to make him feel better. Uh, so they went through the motions of offering him this part. And he went down to do an audition. They took him, actually. And bless his heart, he found out what the role was going to be. And he said, well, I really have in mind something a little more sophisticated than that. And he turned the part down. You know, again, I don't know if that's true or not, but always a gentleman to the end. And that movie was made and Tom Conway played that part. He did spend his final years in the Monterey sanatorium which i guess still stands i guess it's still a hospital to this day but not an insane asylum he he was suffering from dementia and he was in an assisted living facility he stayed at home as long as he could and then as with anyone who knows there reaches a point where you might not be able to take care of your loved ones at home and you might have to send them somewhere unfortunately that is where he died of pneumonia which is common with people who who have dementia they reach that point you know, sometimes if you're incredibly wealthy, you can try to stay home as long as you possibly can. I know it was just a couple months ago, I read a very sad article about Tony Bennett, uh, who was the last of the crooners. Um, he is suffering from dementia. And uh, we'll have another album coming out very soon with Lady Gaga, uh, their second album. And it will likely be his last. They recorded some of it prior to the pandemic. They did some of it shortly thereafter. He was still performing right up until the pandemic and then the pandemic hits. And then he performs every day at home. His pianist who lives a few blocks away comes to their home. They, he has his apartment looks over Central Park, but he's reached a point where he can no longer paint. He's obviously deteriorating. His pianist comes every day and they do a concert. And as soon as the piano starts playing, he starts singing and he doesn't miss a beat. He knows the songs, knows the lyrics. But then as soon as the music stops and he's right back into not necessarily knowing what he's done or where he's at. I think in his case, it's therapeutic. And they said that's that's the one thing that's kind of keeping him from really devolving more. Unfortunately, the pandemic has robbed him of being able to perform. And the likelihood is, they said, that once he's able to, as far as the pandemic goes, the likelihood is that he'll never be able to perform again in a public setting, maybe in a small setting with family and friends. But it's going to depend on when that happens and how long his his health holds out. Supposedly, during the recording of uh, of this new CD he's got coming out, Lady Gaga did know and helped him through the process. Apparently, you know, a lot of people really, you know, have all sorts of thoughts about Lady Gaga, but she's a beautiful singer, amazing singer. And what she did with Tony Bennett was so great. You'd have to know how to deal with someone with dementia. So it's unfortunate that Hollywood Babylon, you know, kind of went down that route with with him. And I would say they were taking some unfortunate dementia related events they may have heard from somebody and turning him into something that was really just someone suffering from dementia in the twilight of their life. And of course, this is his wife talking, but she tells her side of the story. That book implied that George was violent. He was never violent. The doctor had warned me that he might become violent, but in fact, it was the other way. He became very docile. Once it was rather, really funny. I was visiting George at the sanitarium and he said to me, I think you did a very good job when you bought this place. So he was comfortable and content and he thought of the sanitarium as our home. 
His illness lasted nine years before he died on May 27th, 1960 of pneumonia. Like you said, he was 74 years old. Very unfortunate. And gosh, his wife having to endure not only the loss of her husband, but then right after that, their daughter, that's a tremendous amount of loss in a short amount of time. George Zuka may never have been an A-list actor, but because of all of the horror films that he did, you know, he is definitely, he's never going to be on the Lugosi or, or Karloff level. But uh, I think it's, when you mentioned Lionel Atwill, you mentioned George Zuko and vice versa. They go hand in hand a lot. And uh, I think this was a lot of fun to, to take a look at these three films yeah. uh, from, from kind of different aspects. Not really, di- not much differences time-wise, five years really from, from one film to the next, but three very different performances. Yeah, him. he was very, very versatile actor. I Absolutely. think maybe more so than Lionel Atwill maybe. I think so. I mean, Lionel Atwell, I mean, I had a lot of fun watching him, but I think George Zuko had a broader range as an actor. I, I, I would have to agree. Yeah. Well, very good. Let's take one last break and come back for some new business, shall we? Sounds good. In a forgotten mansion deep in a dismal swampland, a scientist crazed by his lust for revenge prepares the last detail of a diabolical death plan. A few moments ago, Nature was a man, a harmless, good-natured man. Look at him now. He's no longer seen. He's a wolf, snarling, ferocious, lusting for the kill. The beast strikes swiftly, the first of four violent fiendish murders. Into this crime-ridden situation, a reporter finds the biggest story of his career. What should make a gory enough story for your paper? This is more than just a story to me. He was my friend. Joined by the girl he loves, these two follow the gruesome trail of the mad monster. Every lead proves false. Then, one night, a strange, ominous power draws this girl to a rendezvous with death. Richard, I feel a little better this month. There seem to be more movies that are coming out. I've been complaining in previous months that it seemed like the numbers were diminishing. Thank goodness for Shout Factory and Kino Lorber for 80% of this output. May 11th, King Kong 1976 is making its Blu-ray debut from Screen. I know who somebody, what somebody is going to be getting soon. I'm sure that's that's probably ordered already. May 18th, a week later, why am I mentioning this from Warner, Warner Archive, The Private Lives of Elizabeth and Essex, a 1939 movie with Betty Davis and Errol Flynn? Why am I mentioning that? I just, Vincent Price is in that, isn't he? Yes, he is. Yes. I don't know what its availability has been, but I've certainly never had an opportunity to see it. See it so I haven't either. I might like Very to Very young, that. probably just a supporting role, but because that's the same year he did Tower of London. A young, young Vincent Price. May 18th, also a couple of 80s 
movies from Shout Factory, He Knows You're Alone from 1980 and Eyes of a Stranger from 1981. He Knows You're Alone, Tom Hanks. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I forgot. I was like- that. And uh, Eyes of a Stranger, I did watch within the last year or so and wrote about it on the blog. Not very good. <laughs> a week later from Shout again, May 25th, The Hand from 1981, Oliver Stone, a uh, disembodied hand movie michael kane yes yeah yeah yeah. okay i remember liking that for what it was yeah i want to see it again i don't know that i'm going to buy it but i definitely would like to see it again i mean it's a disembodied hand movie you kind of know what you're getting june 1st the love butcher from 1975 kino lorber one of those movies i gotta mention just because the uh, synopsis sounds so interesting and i have no idea who's in it or anything, but the twisted tale of Caleb and his alter ego, Lester. After being pushed around too far, Caleb transforms into Lester and returns to those who have wronged him. (laughs) Name of Lester. The love butcher. Yeah, Lester the love butcher. (laughs) A week later, also Keener Lorber's Scream, not the Scream that started a franchise, but a 1981 movie about a group of friends on a rafting trip down a river, stopping in an old ghost town to spend the night. Soon their rafts disappear, and then they begin to be eliminated one by one by a mysterious killer. Written and directed by the auteur Byron Quisenberry, whoever that may be. I've never heard of June 15th. Well, actually, let's not skip June 8th. Well, I... I say June 8th, but we both received that this movie this week, Howl of the Devil from 19. 19- I was wondering when that was coming out. Yeah. Mondo Macabro. So we must have gotten the, can I say what I've been calling it? Well, I was going to say, I'd show you the cover, but then that would get us in a bad spot. Yeah, It has a flip. I showed this to Carla. I mentioned what you said the other day. I was like, yeah, so Jeff asked if I, if I got something in the mail. And she's like, looked at me and of course, Carla's not a Paul Nashy fan, unfortunately. And so when this came in the mail, I said, oh, hey, my blank arrived in the mail today. And she just looked at me like, really? And she's like, I'm offended by that cover. She says, that's so subjective towards women. And I said, well, there is a flip cover. But she says, yes, but why'd they have to do that? And I'm like, well, you know, it's eye-catching. It's like, <laughs> yeah. So I guess that's the official, we got the early bird special or whatever, I guess, on that. And it is officially released in the non-deluxe version on June 8th. Limited edition number 392 of 1500. Oh, I didn't see what my number is. I'll text you later and let you know. June 15th, a couple of mummy movies from Shout. These are from the 80s. We have The Awakening from 1980 and Sphinx from 1981. I believe The Awakening has Charlton Heston. Yes. And Sphinx, I don't know. I remember seeing The Awakening and I thought it was very boring. Yes, because you're like expecting a mummy movie and it's really not that great of a film. Although it's Charles Heston, I do kind of want to see it again to see maybe maybe it's not as boring as I remember. I have a feeling it probably is going to be just as boring. And then also from Keenor Lorber on the same date, June 15th, The Being. From 1983, sci-fi horror movie, I believe. Now, there's one other one that maybe we're getting it before the general release. The Euro Crypt of Christopher Lee. Oh, I'm sorry. I did not mention that. Yes, May 25th. from Okay. Yes. Sorry, I skipped a line. Very much looking forward to that. 
Yeah, that's a big set. That's That's got a lot of cool stuff in it, stuff that's been unavailable. Yeah, I'm really fascinated by the TV series, the macabre TV series. That's We're getting the entire series in that, plus all those movies and extras. That's, dare I say, a contender for the uh, DVD set of the year. So they'll have to come out. Now, I said just in the last couple of days, have you seen the new Arrow release coming out for the Daimajin trilogy? Yeah. I've got the Blu-ray set from Mill Creek. Now, yeah, it's just a probably standard Blu-ray set. But I'm seeing that. I was like, well, there's some pretty cool extras to go along with it. I didn't see what like documentaries or anything that it has on it. I just have a, a couple words to say to you, or one word, <laughs> camera. I know. <laughs> if I don't get that, I have to make up my mind, right? Do we know the price yet? I don't know that it had the price. So, you know, I've already responded to a couple people online. I was like, well, I'm happy with what I got. But then I'm like, what if it's got some cool extra stuff and I don't get it and then... Christmas time, I'll be crying again because it was on my Christmas list. So I'll have to do some research and see. It is interesting that they're putting this out so close. All right, let's go to birthdays in the month of May. As you remember from episode five, the oblong madhouse that dripped blood, May is the birthday of the Holy Trinity, Peter Cushing, Christopher Lee, and Vincent Price. Peter Cushing was born on May 26th. Christopher Lee and Vincent Price both on May 27th, not in the same year. Vincent Price was first, 1911. Peter Cushing, 1913. Christopher Lee, 1922. Also, June 12th, 1916, Irwin Allen. We discussed him a little bit in episode 54, a long way from episode five. It's a disaster. We'll be doing another disaster episode, hopefully sometime in the... Near future. Yeah. Somewhere between now and episode 2000. I'm actually surprised that that is something that Carla has asked for a couple of times. Oh. And she's like, what are you guys doing another disaster? Because I was kind of like giving up some of the ideas. And she was like, well, what are you guys doing to the disaster? And I was like, well, I said, maybe we'll have to think about that. Anniversaries, movies that came out in the month of, all of these are June. June 1st, 1944, Jungle Woman. We just talked about that last episode, 56. June 4th, 1943, actually the year before, Captive Wild Woman. Again, from episode 56. Isn't that interesting? What a coincidence. What a coincidence. June 9th, 1978, Damien Omen 2. We talked about the Omen trilogy in episode 29. And then on June 10th, 1970, Count Yorga Vampire. We talked about it and its sequel, and another movie that you watched in episode 39. Is there anything left that we need to see? Apparently we've covered everything. <laughs> I know. I love finding all these movies that we've already talked about. Done so, that, um, done that, done that. We're just so good. <laughs> yeah. So that's new business. Richard, what is up with you? You've mentioned a couple of things you're working on. Yeah. So in the last month, I finally got the... Uh, Dirty Harry series up, which is not horror related, but I did get that up. That was fun to finally kind of get that out there and lay it to rest. So this month in May, since we're talking George Zuko, going to be doing a lot of Zuko stuff. In addition to what we talked about here, there are five Mondays in uh, May. And so I'm going to be doing five 
additional George Zuko films. I'm going to be doing The Monster and the Girl, The Black Raven, The Mad Monster, Dead Men Walk, and The Mad Ghoul. And uh, you also mentioned George Zuko being on old-time radio. Uh, I'm going to be doing four weeks of OTR Wednesday. I'm going to be doing a couple episodes of a show called Encore Theater. Episodes called The Life of Louis Pasteur and Now Voyager. Uh, An episode of Lights Out, which was a rebroadcast of an episode of Arch Obler's plays. Episode called Bathysphere. And then an episode of uh, Suspense called High Wall. Lots of Zuko coming up to supplement what we did here. Non-horror related. I haven't given it a catchy title yet. I've been trying to come up with something. But last couple of years, we've done uh, Marx Brothers and Laurel and Hardy. And so this year, we're gonna, uh, Carla and I are going to be taking a look at the films of Harold Lloyd, who is often called the third genius. Charlie Chaplin, Buster Keaton, and then Harold Lloyd. Harold Lloyd had the round glasses, the boy next door kind of character. He had a a couple of other characters, uh, one of which was kind of like a Charlie Chaplin character, but the peak of his career was when he became the boy next door. Going to be taking a look at his feature films, starting, going to be doing an introduction on the 13th. Going to do these on Thursdays. 13th will be the introduction, and then we'll dive into the film starting the 20th of May. That'll take us all the way through the uh, 16th of September. And then we'll wrap it up. And then uh, by that point, it'll be ready to dive into the countdown to Halloween. This will take us through the summer. And some of these are will be revisits for me. Some will be first-time viewings. These will be all first-time viewings for Carla. You know, something fun. We always kind of like to do something lighthearted. It's a pretty good response. I'm interested to see what Harold Lloyd is going to generate. I know that there's some Charlie Chaplin fans out there. And I'm, I'm kind of curious to see if there's going to be any love for Harold Lloyd, or maybe I can introduce some people out there to Harold Lloyd. A lot of these movies that actually have just gone online on YouTube for free from the Harold Lloyd estate, he maintained the prints of his movies. And really, the bulk of them have not gone public domain, although I know with public domain laws now, a lot of the movies in the 20s have been. He made the transition successfully from silent to sound. In fact, did, what, six movies? Yeah, six movies uh, in sound. You know, Charlie Chaplin made a transition, but he abandoned his character along the way. Harold Lloyd kept his character intact. That is going to be something fun starting up in the month of May. What do you have going on? Oh, I should mention, I said it already, caseycinephile.com and monstermoviekid.wordpress.com. What have you got going on? Well, I was not as forward-thinking to do... Uh, George Zuko movies. That would have been some nice synergy there, but I'm glad you're doing that. I instead am going on a different route. And since this is probably the middle of May, we're halfway through the month of Gamera. I believe it or not, I've never seen the Gamera movies. And so every Monday, I'm going to start digging through the box set that I have and watch uh, the movie. So I will have already done the first one, Gamera, the giant monster from 1965, right? Possible. Yes, yes. yes. And the second movie, Gamera versus Baragon from 1966. And then this very day, if you're listening to this on the first day, you should, if all has gone well, be able to read my thoughts about Gamera versus Gaios from 1967. Do you know that at least the first five movies, it was one a year 
Yes, you are going to be avoiding, because you won't get this far into it, but man, I I challenge you, (laughs) as you continue to watch the movies, I so want you to write about Gamera the Super Monster from 1980, because the, the series, and I'm looking at the list right here, so it stops in 71 and then picks up nine years later. And essentially, it's like a clip show, basically, of stock footage. But there is this crazy sequence of this kid playing like a Casio piano, singing a song about Gamera, while these three good-looking girls are sitting there kind of crooning all over this kid. There's so much bizarreness in that movie. So it's a bizarre entry in the Gamera series. And thankfully... You know, it was like a a way for the studio to try to like, hey, we should put out a Gamera film and make some money. And then they did this thing because we got plenty of stock footage. We don't need to film anything new. We'll just hire a kid and give him a piano and sing. Well, (laughs) someday, someday. There's only five Mondays, so I'll only go through five movies. Well, um, if you go beyond, if you want to continue to see the series, I have to know your thoughts on that. And I know then that, you know, it gets better in the 90s. There's a trilogy of films in the 90s, which I've never seen. And so... Oh, you've never seen those? I know. I've never seen them. I've only seen up till that 1980 film. I've not seen the trilogy or the very last film, which is Gamera the Brave in 2006. Which is why when you said you were doing Gamera, I was like, ooh, I wonder if I can like piggyback and, and contribute something. So maybe... If the stars align, you could say it now, and that would be your commitment to do it. I, you know what? I will commit to doing the 1995 film Gamera, or is it Gamera, Guardian of the Universe, first film in the trilogy. I don't know how interconnected they are, but I will, I will do the first film. And so at some point in the latter half of May, I will offer up my thoughts on that Gamera film. I will commit to Gamera, Guardian of the Universe. And uh, piggyback on what you're doing and offer up Good, good. More synergy. I like that. Yes, absolutely. And I just want to mention the uh, We Belong Dead projects that are happening right now. I just submitted two for their uh, Hammer special. I kind of got to the list late and I got the Hammer Classics, Creatures the World Forgot, and The Old Dark House. But the ironic thing is I really like both those movies. So who's the winner now? I've seen Old Dark House. I've never seen Creatures of the World Forgot. I, I have like it. Of those cave woman movies, that is actually my favorite. So I was happy to write about that. And then June 1st, I have a deadline for the Euro horror book where I will be writing about the Grapes of Death, Stage Fright, and The House That Screamed. So far, I'm lucky. I get to write about movies I really like. That's it. That's what's going on. But I cannot wait to mention what we are doing for next month's episode. You want to let it out of the bag? Although I don't guess that big a surprise. So last summer in the pandemic was in full swing. We went to the drive-in. We did three uh, months, June, July, and August, and had a lot of fun. The episodes were a change of pace, a lot of cool uh, special features that we did. I thought, you know what? We had such a good response. We've got to do it again. We're 
still working with how we're going to do the video version of this. So bear with us. We're, we've got some ideas percolating, but nonetheless, the audio version is, I think what we did last year was perfect. And that's what we're going to do again. We're going to travel back in time to a simpler era, circa 1957 next month for the uh, to the South 29 drive-in. What a great, well, they actually did five movies this particular night. We're doing a triple feature. We're not going to stay for all five films, but we're going to be doing Tarantula from 1955, The Deadly Mantis from 1957, and Attack of the Crab Monsters from 1957. Giant bug and monsters. I Perfect said it was going to be bigger than last year. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect way to start off the summer, right? Carla's very, very excited. She loves giant bug movies and giant monster movies like that. She doesn't want the monsters to get hurt, but she does love the giant bugs. These will be fun. We actually watched Tarantula not too long ago. Deadly Mantis has been a while since I've seen it. Attack of the Crab Monsters. You're going to be watching that on Blu-ray, and I didn't act quick enough, and it's out of print. So I have a bootleg copy that's actually not bad. It came out before the movie was, was readily available. I recently checked my copy out. I was like, you know, it's not bad. That's what we've got coming up. We've got some fun stuff coming up in July and August. Maybe some surprises along the way. Oh, there's going to be surprises. Yes. Yeah, we've got some, some cool ideas. We've got some... I will give this away. Two little sneak previews down the road. There's going to be lots of blood. There's going to be maybe another visit from Godzilla before the summer's over with. And perhaps the most frightening thing of them all, we'll be getting a visit from the chat. <laughs> we'll just leave it at that. <laughs> That's what we got coming up. Next three months are going to be going back to the drive-in, and I'm excited for it. Until then, remind you all to join our Facebook group page, to send us an email at classichorrors.clubatgmail.com, to give us a call or send us a voicemail at 616-649-2582. Rate us on Apple Podcasts. Spread the word. Join the club. Hope that you will join us in all of our future endeavors. Richard, our last song. I need this. We're not done yet. I have to talk to you about this. It's called The Mummy's Hand. It's from a K-Tel record by Zip Kaplan and Cast of Thousands. It's from the 2008 album Monsters and Heroes. It's available on Apple Music. But have you ever heard of such a thing? Because this is fascinating. Well, the fact that it's 2008, I did not even know this until about a month ago. KTEL still exists, uh, which blew my mind. I thought they were long gone, but they still existed. And actually, uh, someone posted something about like the building that KTEL was was in, you can still see like the KTEL letters on the building. It's up for sale. And apparently they've moved to a new like office building somewhere. So, I mean, the glory days of KTEL are, mm-hmm. are long since gone. But the fact that it's 2021 and KTEL still exists and it's still the same CEO is still in charge of that, that's oh. mind blowing. That's but this uh, is the most bizarre thing. It's their instrumentals, but... The, they have the Universal March, but this is like the Miko of Universal movies because it's a, a 
<laughs> the Miko. Oh my yeah, God. Like synthesized type version. I, I might play that as well, but all of the tracks are named universal after universal movies. There's Bride of Frankenstein. I can't tell if it's the actual like theme music. There's one for Godzilla. I clicked on it and it's not the Godzilla March that we're familiar with. So, you know, I don't know if these are just inspired by the movies or if they're actually using music, but this one's the mummy's hand. George Zuko was in the mummy's hand. I thought that would be an interesting way to go out. You've got me intrigued. Absolutely. <laughs> Thank you everyone for joining us. Take care. We'll see you next month. Stay safe. Take care, everyone.